Welcome to the Global Thought Podcast, brought to you by the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. My name is Junjie Ren, a graduate of the 2020-2021 MA in Global Thought program. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Rishaka Desai, the chair of the Committee on Global Thought and senior advisor for global affairs to the president of Columbia University. In this special episode, she is joined by four of her former students. Who represent lived experiences spanning Africa, Asia, Latin America, North America, and Europe. We're here to discuss her memoir, "World as Family: A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings," published by Columbia University Press in May 2021. In this episode, we have included voices from different corners of the world. We'll be hearing from each of them: Tama Viale, born in El Salvador; Zora Benzerga. Who most recently lived in Eswatini, Rasmus Foss from Denmark, and myself from China. We'll hear stories about a liminal life. We'll share the strain and acceleration of multiple belongings, the expanse, and the potential of a truly global life. We hope to offer a sense of companionship for all those among us who live or will live outside their countries of origin, either by force or by choice. Welcome, Vishaka. What a pleasure it is to see all of you to have a mini reunion. Thank you so much, Junjie, for organizing this. But also wonderful to see you, Telma, Rasmus, and Zora. And I'm looking forward to this conversation very, very much. Well, thank you, Vishaka. I guess to start.、Um, It's no surprise that someone with your rich and inspiring story would write a memoir. But first, what led you to write this book and centered it around the concept of multi-rooted belongings? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question because I had been asked to write. Something about my life. Not that it's that interesting, because in fact, many many millions of people have gone through similar experiences. But the question was that it, I really started thinking about what is it that made me so committed to the idea of globality. Especially at the moment in the early 2012, 13, when in fact by the time you came to 2015, things were pretty anti-global, if you will. Everybody from the right and the left was actually talking about global as antithetical to local and national. And I kept saying, but that's not my experience. So. How did I get to this place? Has a lot to do with living locally, nationally, and in the global arena, without having to give up anything. Yes, some things get lost. Some things get slightly little less important. And then I started teaching with all of you. As students in global thought, but also meeting with exchange students much, much younger than myself、uh, from all over the world, and I realized that all of you live in multiplicity, either virally because the world is in your palm. You are global natives, and for you, it ha- you haven't had the luxury of layering things the way I did, being of a certain age. So then I said, you know. You all are my global Sherpas. 
you are the ones who guide me to ask questions, to excavate details from my life. And out of that emerged this concept that actually, if you can create multiplicity of roots, either real or imagined, multiplicity of connecting to different kinds of people, your chance of actually connecting at a global level is probably higher. Hence the idea of world as family, the title of the book, and the second part of the title, a journey of multi-rooted belongings. A journey was important to me because this doesn't all happen all at once. It happens in fits and starts. It's messy. There are byways and pathways, and we all have to pay attention to that. Thank you, Vishaka. That's so beautifully put. And I'd say the four of us, four of your former students journeyed together um, into the global thought experience. And from my observation, I think we often try in the classroom to embody the values and of curiosity and of respect as much as we can. And I think that's one of the beauties of global thought is to have a room um, filled with 20 plus nationalities and cultural backgrounds, uh, people disagreeing with each other, but then still that kind of willingness to help each other learn and grow really makes CGT like a family. Well, you absolutely said it. You are a petri dish of what I'm trying to do in the book in the sense that that idea of world as family really comes from an ancient Indian phrase that's almost 3,000 years old. And it's so it's well known in India. It's written on top of the parliament, almost so much so that it becomes a cliched phrase. You know, politicians use it. This is how we think of the world. And I had initially thought about not using that title. But working with all of you, this class, previous class, and even the current class, I realized that actually there is something special about this title. Family is a unit we all know. We know what do we learn, at least in a functional family. We learn to be individual in relation to the collective. We learn that we can have our own voice, but we must pay attention to other voices. We must be respectful. And even if you differ, don't let that come in your way to create the bond. You all do that. And that is the beauty of, I mean, this is not a commercial for MA in Global Thought, but that is the beauty of the program, and which is something that I continue to learn from and marvel at. So that title, World as Family, made me realize as COVID happened, when all of you were still the intrepid travelers on this journey of global belonging, you joined MA in Global Thought. And at the same time, what COVID taught us is that our global family is pretty dysfunctional, that this was a pathogen's travel. It didn't need to be a pandemic to the level that it did, so that it exposed the dysfunctionality of our global family. And as a result, we have to fight harder to try to apply the unit of analysis which is family, to the whole world, because we otherwise are doomed. Climate 
is right upon us with the crisis as what we hear right now with COP26. And COVID tells us, social equity crisis tell us that we better think of the collective interdependence in the context of independence and independence in the context of interdependence is something we have to learn to do. That is why I kind of try to figure out how did I get there and make a story that other people can also say, oh, yes, I see myself in it. And all of you live that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite simply, there is no other way out of all the crises we face unless we treat the world as family and expand the idea of kinship and extend it to people whom we tend to disagree with, whom we consider not us. And on that note, I'm happy to welcome a member of the Global Thought family, Zora, one of the most recent graduates from the Global Thought program. Welcome. Hey, good to be here. Oh, Zora. Well, I often hesitate a little bit to associate you with one singular place, or I just don't know where you come from when I think about you. <laughs> uh, I know you have lived in many, many different places. And to lead us into the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your life, where you've lived and where's home for you? Um, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Madagascar, and then I moved to South Africa when I was a teenager and finished high school in Eswatini, which is a small kingdom in Southern Africa. Um, my family is from Colorado and also Algeria, but now they're kind of all over the world. They're in Jamaica, the UK, France, in North Carolina, um, Virginia. So uh, I have family everywhere. Um, but I went to college in New York, and now I kind of hesitantly call the city my home. Um, so my worlds span lots of places and lots of cultures. So my own sense of identity is, is um, kind of all over the show. Um, you know what? It's perfect. As you <laughs> said, it's kind of untidy. And as I say in the book, I celebrate messiness over artificial clarity. And the truth is, in that liminal space, out of that muck comes something new that you can't even imagine and you continue to grow into. And that's why you are a perfect example of untidiness of global belonging, right? Yeah. And, and you know, Vishaka, something that, that um, I've been thinking about with regards to your book is, um, you know, the sense of, of bringing multiple worlds together. And um, personally, you know, I think that I, I always approach those moments with a little bit of um, nervousness. And I think it's because um, I'm aware that I'm a slightly different person, depending on who I'm with and where I am. Um, but, you know, I think that also my worlds kind of contradict each other in, in, in strange ways, but also have the potential to complement each other in surprising ways. Um, and so this desire to bring worlds together, I think, also comes from the fact that it's, it's quite grounding. Um, there's something about it that, that makes multiple experiences more real and more integrated. Um, and you talk about this quite a bit in your book. Um, and specifically, there's a moment where you describe um, bringing your colleagues from um, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to your family home. 
and um, your your feelings around that and the nervousness, um, but also the anticipation. Um, and I totally relate to that. And so, well, I can also quote what you what you say in the book, and you say um, that that your friends and colleagues coming to to India and coming to see your family helped your two worlds come together in a deep and personal way that you couldn't have possibly imagined. And my question to you is is really, what does that mean? You know, and 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 maybe could you talk a little bit more about what that means to you now? You know. Yeah, what a, it's a beautiful way that you picked up on that because it's a very seminal moment. I didn't even know it at the time, I have to tell you, because that happened about oof, 35 years ago or something like that. Um, but it was the first time that my professional colleagues in America were actually coming to India with me. And it wasn't just India everywhere. They wanted to come to my hometown. And I kept saying, I don't know, you know, Ahmedabad is not the prettiest place in the world. And how would it be? And one of the things I talk about in the book is that I was used to being a curator a cultural informant about India in somewhat climate-controlled antiseptic galleries of the Boston Museum, right? So it was easy to talk about India, but then they had to deal with the messiness of India and the craziness of India. And my hometown was not pretty, important historically, but not pretty. My home family, my home in Andhavad, is a 1935 home. It's big home, but it isn't the latest of this or that. It doesn't have all the kind of creature comforts that one would be used to. And I didn't realize until we got to Ahmedabad and the hotel they had to stay in was one of the worst we stayed in India. Why? Because it was not on the tourist map. You know, if you went to Rajasthan, you had palaces, you had fancy hotels. Not true in my hometown. And I kept saying, oh, my God, I apologize for all of this. And then they were coming to my house. I talked to my parents and my sister, who also happened to be there at the time from New York. And. I kept saying, well, what are we going to do? You know, it's not the latest of bathrooms and this, that. And I was nervous because I somehow felt that they would not understand a part of me that grew up in a very different setting. And then they come in a bus the bus practically can't get through the narrow lane. They have to walk a little. I mean, it's a big house. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's actually quite beautiful. There's gardens, there's sculptures, there's all that stuff. And my father started talking to them, a journalist, a freedom fighter. But he was very passionate at the time about water shortage in India. And he way before anybody was talking about climate, he was talking about what this was going to do to the water shortages in India because of the climate, because people had extracted so much water. And all these people are completely mesmerized. We had just gone to Gandhi Ashram, where my father had gone first as an 18-year-old rebel rouser. And they were so fascinated by those conversations and they just loved being there. 
35 years later now, when I meet them in Boston, they would say that was the most memorable experience they had. Part of it was that it was human connection. It was a connection at a level where they said, you let me into your life that we couldn't have imagined otherwise. And, you know, I think about now, everything is available everywhere. You can go ahead and get things on Google. I can drop into my home and get a picture. But there is something about the connectivity and three-dimensionality about human beings and openness to connect, but also willingness to be empathic. That, and for me, it meant that my Indian family, some of them had been to Boston by now, but they actually saw what I was like in Boston. And my Boston connection saw what it was like to have come from where I came from. That's where, and then it changed. So that the next time my parents came, they had a whole bunch of people who they wanted to meet. They, they became friends. It like it expanded the whole system. And to this day, I just saw somebody, in fact, about a couple of months ago, who had come on that trip. And my father had given her a very beautiful oil lamp that happened to be part of his collection. He was sort of like that. She had just recently lost her husband and she had changed the home. And she said, I saved this for you because I know it would mean something to you. And it's like completed circle. These things you can't script. It just happens but it happens out of possibilities. It happens out of different things that come together. Sometimes it is complicated. And sometimes not only is it messy, but it can also be difficult if people are not completely open. And so how do you actually allow for the positive possibility within that circumstances and take the time that it might need? And you never know where it's gonna go. And that's the way at least I think of it. Thank you for that, Rishaka. I think that what I find really beautiful about what you've what you've just put together is that it goes kind of beyond, you know, that moment so that moment where where your friends from Boston meet your family was anticipated with, with some concern and uncertainty, but the moment of the meeting actually kind of expanded into a relationship that goes beyond just you. And you kind of being the connective fabric, you know, then, then it kind of, you, you, you turn to bridge somehow between these, these two places. Um, and then, and then there's a relationship between these two places that exists independent or these two families somehow that exists independent of you. Um, and, and I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I'm actually kind of curious to hear from Rasmus because unlike myself, Rasmus, you spent your whole life in one place in Denmark. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that the, the way that worlds meet for you is, 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 is quite different, but maybe similar in some ways. And so I'd like to know, you know, how, how do you relate to Vishaka's book? Yes. Uh, thank you for the question, Sora. Uh, <laughs> I'm indeed deeply rooted. I've, uh, lived in Copenhagen all of my 28 years, except for one in, uh, in New York city and Boston. Uh, and I'm very fortunate in this sense because almost everyone I know lives inside of just 10 miles, which is unique, right? 
so so earlier this year when you my classmates at Columbia asked me where I'd go after graduating. I simply took it for granted that I'd return to Denmark. Uh, but that being said, living abroad and returning home has also given me a new perspective on my own culture, of course, and on some of the things I've taken for granted my entire life. Um, and in relation to your book, Vishaka, I think I have a small bit of what you called uh, the mentality of the immigrant. And I was I was really struck by this phrase because there seems to be a, a kind of a contradiction. Um, you know, only people who move will develop this mentality. And yet you seem to suggest it's something we all need. Um, could you tell us what you mean by it? Why you think it's important? And also, especially how you think it's possible to to foster this mentality in people with deep roots in one place who are either, you know, unable or unwilling to uh, to travel? Well, I think that you, again, have picked up on a nice phrase that's worth unpacking. When I say immigrant mentality, what do I mean? What do I mean by that is people who actually have double consciousness to borrow from Dubois. And by that, I mean to be able to see in the rearview mirror what you're part of, but also to recognize that when you look forward, it may not connect to where you come from. So that means the ability to get out of yourself from one perspective and see yourself in another perspective. That idea can be actually true for anybody. Look at you, perfect example, because in fact, I would say that for immigrants, you're forced to do that. You don't have a choice. But so it's easier to some extent because you're in that lived reality. You just got to figure that out. For people like you, you have to make more of an effort. And you do. Look at you. Even though you live within 10 miles of all of your relatives and friends, you did come to America. You did take a class in global thought. It's because your mind is open that you want to learn about yourself in relation to the world. And in that process, as you just said, that by spending a year away, spending with your colleagues on, in global thought, your attitude towards Denmark has changed. It's that flexibility that I'm talking about. The liminality of experience may not be there, but opening of the mind and desire to open the mind. So those who are unwilling to leave their hometown, whatever it is, is one thing. But those who are unwilling to open their mind is different. You have opened your mind. And once you open your mind and your eyes, you can go back, even if you are within the 10 miles. But it requires work. You have to continuously nurture that, that idea of duality, multiplicity. It may not be that you belong everywhere, but you're open to the idea of connecting across cultures. And that is, in a way, the best of immigrant mentality. And I said the best because it doesn't always occur unless you're constantly nurturing it as well. So we all have to do that work mm -hmm. and you're doing it. 
Yeah, you, you could say I, I chose to open my eyes to the world, or at least it, it happened. Then it's a completely different challenge to, if you could say, open other pe- people's eyes. And uh, and if our goal is to change uh, the world, as you say, how do we do that? That That is a, a tough well, question. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is even Denmark is not what Denmark was 50 years ago. Right? True. Yes. So right where you live, many worlds come together or not come together. So then the issue is without leaving for anywhere, how are you actually connecting with people who are different from you? Are you reading things about people who are different from you? I actually, because of the book, I've done some podcasts for parents and parents have said, what can I do to get my kids to be open to the world like that? And I say, what films do you see? What books do you read? Who are your friends? Who are you talking to? All of that makes a difference. Are you making a concerted effort? If you're not making a concerted effort, then how do you encourage people to do that without making them feel bad, right? Yeah, I I really like that point. So, uh, Thelma, you've all you've lived all over the world, and and also like Sora, you're rooted in many different places. Uh, but I know that like me, you also have one anchor, uh, one place that you consider home, and that is El Salvador. What's uh, your story? Yeah, indeed, I left when I was soon after my 18th birthday. And people often think that I fled the war because El Salvador had a war in the 80s um, or that I went to study abroad and stayed abroad. But no, I, I left from a place of courage, I would say, and curiosity about the world. I recall staring numerous sunsets um, in, in the Pacific Ocean uh, where we used to go every Sunday. And I would wonder what was life like on the other side? And, um, and and once I was abroad, I, I just grew mesmerized and was almost addictive to new cultures, new languages. And every time the prospects of going back to a country at war didn't make sense at all. So I stayed overseas. I worked my way through the best education I could find and then stumbled into the fascinating journey of the United Nations, spent decades of my life as an international civil servant. I then had a family. I had two kids, a son and a daughter. And at best, in lack of a better word, um, uh, we could define them as third culture kids. Um, they were born in different continents, learned many languages, were raised in Europe, in the U.S., and spent most holidays with my extended family in El Salvador when I'm back now. So that's quite my story. Yeah, I mean, I think that the fact is that you had a rootedness in El Salvador and then you added things to it. So in a way, your situation is like mine, right? Where I grew up in one place and then I added things on top of it. And it is quite different for your kids, isn't it? That they are in a way world natives from the moment they were born. Indeed. I mean, I there, were, there was a part that really struck me um, Many, I mean, it's such a beautiful, intimate um, uh, journey that we have with you in the book. Um, but you say something about, um, you know, those who embody multiple migrations and cultures, 
the very idea of home is less about a place and more about experiences and people. But then you also recognize the privilege of having had your home at 38 Jaguar Nankar, giving you a sense of being and belonging during the first 16 years of your life. I can say that I had the same privilege. I lived until I was 17 years old in Calle Arce 716 in San Salvador. And although my children recognize the many privileges of their global upbringing, I sense their yearning for the experience of growing up in the same country, in the same physical home. They perceive it both sort of easier and broader to embrace multicultures from my solid Latin American upbringing and the sense of belonging it gave me. I think at some point you also mentioned when you were in the States, you said that the assurances of rootedness, you know, a confidence to survive and flourish anywhere is something that you brought when you just arrived in the States. Um, so I, I tried to give my kids roots and wings, but it seems that they develop the wings and long for the roots. roots. So I... I wonder how you reconcile those strong feelings and, and can home yeah. in multiple cultures replace those lost roots that we develop in our formative years or, or is this search, you know, a continuum in their lives? It's such an important question to Thelma because I think that in a way people like you and I had a little easier time because we got our roots. It's like if you were a plant, you got lots of water and the roots kind of got nourished. And then you started growing the branches and you could kind of flower, you know. And I think that for third culture kids, lots of studies show that two different things happen. One is either the kids just kind of try to figure out how to belong no matter where we are and make new families, connections, and so on. And there are some who get very confused. And I always think that it is harder for the kids who didn't have that strong sense of rootedness. But a very dear friend of mine, Pico Iyer, who I quote in the book, he is born of Indian parents. It's completely Indian blood, right? But he was born in England then lived in Santa Barbara, California, now lives in Japan with a Japanese wife. So when people ask him if he's Indian, he says, "I yes, my skin is Indian, but I've never lived there. I have no connection to that particular home. And he talks about this notion of it is not about soil, but soul. So he finds comfort in close family, friends, connections he makes that he can keep and and records, music that he listens to. So that's how he's making his sense of belonging. It's not rootedness, but it's belonging. It's belonging in building a community that you feel you can connect with at the deeper level, a deep level in terms of connection, friendship, you can count on them. And how can we actually get our kids to have that sense that no matter where they are, they're a group of people who they can relate to on the one hand and are open enough to enlarge and continue to enlarge that circle. 
that's the only way. But I do recognize that it's tougher to be broad and to be rooted. A lot tougher. And we have to figure out how to give them a sense of anchoring in some way, you know. Thanks, Vishaka, for those insights. Um, I'm very curious to hear um, from Rek, uh, who grew up in China, since we've heard from three continents already. John uh, uh, can you share with us what was most striking in growing up in China and in how world as a family resonated with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Delma. And to go back to your earlier points, the earlier points made in your conversation with Rashaka, I feel like it's been tough for me sometimes to figure out a sense of belonging uh, because I grew up in China. Most of my um, ancestors lived in the same place for hundreds of years. And unlike them, um, around the age of 16, my parents decided it's a good idea to send me to Utah out of all places for an exchange program in the summer. And at this point you made earlier, Vishaka, I think is just so brilliant. And you uh, circle back to it many times um, in your book and in our conversation so far. It's, as soon as you open your eyes to the world, you can never shut them again. And for me, after opening my eyes to uh, life in America or simply to the Mormon community in Utah, I realized I can never shut them again. And then um, I went to upstate New York for undergrad. And there I spent most of my time, however, with American Japanese Buddhist community. Um, most of my friends were Jewish and a couple of my good friends were American veterans. Um, it's beautiful, but sometimes it's been really difficult for me to have a sense of anchor. And Vishaka, I know in your book, um, you quoted Gandhi a lot. And I have this quote pulled out because I wanted to ask you for some advice um, as a young person. And the quote is that, I do not want my house to be walled in on all sides and my windows to be stuffed. I want the cultures of all lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible. And I think so uh, for a young person in my generation, life is really precarious. Like we graduated, we grew up in two, through two depressions, major depressions in the pandemic. Life, life is like difficult. So how um, do you, how do you think we can reconcile? How do you think we can reconcile our desire to be porous and open and accepting while at the same time uh, stay rooted and firm when, when sometimes you don't even know who you are, when so much of your life is relational? Right. Uh, you know, Rec, as you quote that from Gandhi. And I realize now that Gandhi was also a product of a particular time and of a particular moment in that at the time of independence, he was trying to say, we need to reclaim our Indian heritage, but not close the outside world. In other words, as he had also used to say that um, we are asking the British to leave India, but the British people are not our enemies. 
Therefore, this idea of synthetic, hybrid connectivity was something that was desirous. I realize now that actually for people like you or Thelma's children or Zora, not you, Rasmus, because you have the rootedness is different, but there is something about if you don't have the luxury of that rootedness, how do you actually create the floor of a house to be strong? And I think that the very definition has to be changed. So that may be that it is more about emotional connection. It's what my friend Pico says about soul, not soil. How do we make actually ourselves feel comfortable in no matter where we are? And I will also say that I couldn't have written this book when I was your age Mm. because I was too confused. So all I can tell you is confusion is okay. It'll get better. That's the only thing I can tell you because there is something about reflecting and living. But as you grow, the only thing is I often say to my younger colleagues, and I've said that to you, is that in the worst of times, you'll belong nowhere. Right. In the best of times, you can belong anywhere. But you cannot have that experience of belonging to more than one places if you don't allow yourself to be in different places or different mindsets. And sometimes that flexibility is confusing. And I completely get it. And I think it is hard for you guys, harder than it is for me. So that's why I end the book by saying, I realize that I have the luxury of having a solid ground. Mm -hmm. And actually that anxiety, which is what I also call the anxiety of multiplicity, anxiety of living in multiple time zones, multiple cultures is much greater now. And that is what all of you are saying. But the only thing I have, and not an advice, but only thing I can say from experience is that it will allow you to be more open because you will not be able to close your eyes again once you've opened it. And it will open up to possibilities that you have not even imagined. But in the process, there will be confusion and messiness, but it's worth it. That's the only thing I can tell you, it's worth it. Right. And I think that circles back to um, to this image, um, this well-known image of Shiva. Nataraja, Lord of the Dance, having so many things to uh, in, in in his hands and have to balance everything, but then in stillness he is in movement. In movement he is stillness, and it, it kind of just dwell in that confusion and be comfortable, right. not having everything figured out. Yeah, right. And I think that stillness in dancing Shiva comes from within. So how to actually find the calmness within you? It becomes harder because you can't be dependent on a whole lot of other things. And therefore, for people like you, Rack, or as I said, Thelma's children, Zora, all of you, it's actually harder to find the calmness from within you. 
And part of it would be through your close friends, through the connections you find and relish that idea that you'll have to create that yourself. It's not going to be readily available to you. For Rasmus, he's fortunate that he is readily available, but for Rasmus to open up and stay open and to have the immigrant mentality is more work. For you to find stability is more work. And that's actually the conundrum that we're all in. We have to find both of them in our life. And I always find that working with all of you guys and younger people, it just, I learn every day from just talking to you by thinking, for example, this very observation of need for stability and need for openness are part of the same coin. I hadn't quite thought about it that way until we just talked. So thank you for getting these ideas out in the open for the world. Well, thank you, Vishaka. It's been our privilege. And before we go, do you have any concluding remarks that we can carry uh, or for our audience who are listening? Well, first of all, thank you all for really joining this wonderful conversation. And I hope that all of you who are listening to this podcast, no matter what age you are, especially if you're young, know that messiness is part of life. And out of that messiness will come new flower, a lotus that comes from muck in the water and emerges as a beauty. And that's the possibility. But now it's not just the beauty and it's not just a good idea. What COVID and climate crisis tell us is that we have no choice but to keep thinking of the multiplicity and out of which we can emerge as the idea of being members of the large 7.7 billion people that are the global human family for us and for our environment. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Vishaka. 